1: Lighting candles each week to draw our attention back to the lessons of Advent lighting candles is a simple but profound practice as it signifies light in the darkest places we lit the candle of hope reminding us of our hope in the one to come and the last week we lit the candle of peace reminding us to imagine new ways of living in peace of Jesus
0: And today we light the candle of joy. We light the candle of joy as a reminder that Jesus Christ alone is the way to unimaginable and everlasting joy. We remember God's promise that through Jesus, all sorrow and sadness will cease. The candle of joy reminds us of our need for a savior to rescue us from the darkness within us and so that the birth of Jesus is good news of great joy for all people. In a world that finds pleasure in abundance of things and offers an abundance of escapes from our pain, we are called back to the stable where we find our true joy in Jesus, who will return for us.
2: Our reading today comes from Isaiah 61, verses 1-4, through where we see the joy of anticipation in the good news for the oppressed. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, He will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. They will revive them, though they have been deserted for many generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let us pray. Loving God, all of creation rejoices for you. For it was you who hung the stars and you who made our beating hearts. So as we anticipate the birth of your son, fill our hearts not only with hope, which we so desperately need, but also with joy. For when the nights feel too long and the darkness too strong, your joy lights the way for us. In your holy name, we gratefully pray. Amen. Morning. Hey, I'm Johnny Williams. I'm I'm on staff here at the Vineyard. I want to echo what Lindsey said a while ago um, about the end of year giving. Just have that in by January 31st. We have a slogan on our administrative team is that we won't lie to the IRS for you. Um, So, because every year somebody asks us January 3rd, they'll be like, "Ah, I forgot to give this. I'm like, sorry. Um, So, yeah, Hey, um, I'm out here to give a, a quick update on must-have gifts, and um, if you are new to, to the vineyard um, and you don't know what we're talking about, there are some flyers on your seats, one of those green things um, floating around. We'll give you a little bit of an explanation, um, but every year we we raise funds for uh, things that aren't necessarily um, on the Major retail stores wish list um, things that actually are needed. Uh, and, and this year we're raising money for three different things. Um, the first one is the Freedom House. Um, is it up there? Yep. So sorry, um, in my back. Um, so first one is Freedom House, and what we're doing there is we're trying to raise funds for um, a, a school in Haiti that needs transportation to transport kids back and forth from the school to the doctor to to their housing and in a safe way right now they're riding in the back of a pickup truck uh, which is just incredibly dangerous in haiti um, so we're trying to buy a van for them and we're trying to raise twenty thousand dollars for that currently we're sitting at five thousand eight hundred and ninety five dollars so got a little ways to go there um the second thing we're going to try to raise funds for is a church and the uh the dr that a haitian man is actually pastoring, um, and doing some racial reconciliation between Dominicans and Haitians is a really beautiful thing that he's doing. And he's doing this church in his house. So we are trying to raise some funds to kind of expand that out and make some more room for, for him to, to do that work. And we are trying to raise $10,000 for that. And we're currently at $7,415. Um, so, and then the last thing we're trying to do is raise money for the box, which uh, Lindsay was talking about earlier. Um, and that's just our needs meeting system. Um, uh, actually, she was, she didn't talk about it. She talked about that to the volunteers earlier. So, um, so the, the box is our need meeting system. What we're trying to do there is we're trying to raise funds to give to schools um, to principals and guidance counselors around Blunt County. Um, some, just give them some gift cards so that they can give it to the kids who actually need it. They know who they are. Um, so we're trying to raise $10,000 for that. And we are currently at $6,475. Um, yeah, yeah that's, uh, we're, we're almost there. Um, so, we uh, we will be raising those funds through the end of the year. So if you want to do that, you can give in any way that you want to, there all the information's on those cards. Um, right now, you'll see a video about the box, um, the thing I was just talking about. I think um, Amy Roberts is going to tell you a little bit more. Sit on there.
0: Good morning. Um, I'm Amy and I am on staff here at the Vineyard. Uh, Part of my job is to oversee our box ministry, which is our benevolence ministry. Um, One of the things that we do that we're able to do through the kindness of you guys is bless people in our church, bless people in our community uh, who might need things like utility bills paid or rent paid or um, groceries or things like that. We're able to help in those ways when we have the funds for it. One of the really cool things of about overseeing the box is getting to see what a difference it makes in the lives of the people that we're able to help um, and that's all because of you guys and your generosity so our uh, one of our must-have gifts this year is going to be for the box uh, we're hoping to raise ten thousand dollars so that we can provide more assistance for people within our church within our community um, last year we were able to give out gift cards for Christmas for people who might not um, able to provide Christmas for their families. We were able to do that. Um, One of the other really cool things that we got to do last year with the money that we raised um, was we have some connections at different schools with through counselors or teachers, the staff, um, and we were able to provide them with gift cards. Um, And so as the year went on, as they saw certain needs, they were able to fulfill those needs with their students, um, which is just a really cool thing for us to be able to do. Um, So the goal this year is $10,000. We are hoping to be able to do all of the things that we did last year and more. Um, That is going to provide um, Christmas for families within our community that's going to provide more gift cards for um, these guidance counselors to be able to bless their students that's going to be able to uh, put a little bit of money in the box so that as needs arise and people come in we are able to um, assist them as well and we would just love for you guys to partner with us in that Um, if you have any questions I would love to talk to you about it it's a it's a ministry that's near and dear to my heart if you are interested in giving to the box fund uh, you can do that in several ways you can text uh, neighbor, the keyword neighbor, you can give online, you can write a check. If you're writing a check, just be sure to put a must have gifts, the box in the memo line so we can make sure that it gets to the right spot. We're trying to raise 10 grand, I know we can do it.
3: Thanks guys. Amy's the cutest. Um, she keeps us all in line. I, I don't know how to tell you how much she does for Springbrook because we don't see her in this room all the time, um, but she does. She's why we have communion, because she remembers to order it, which feels like a very important job in a church. Uh, so anyway, that was Amy. Um, let's pray and, and we'll jump in. God, I ask that you would be with us over the next few minutes. I ask that you would not only be near, as we believe you are, but that you would feel near. I pray that um, you would help us in the work of reimagining, reimagining joy and uh, our relationship with it. And we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your presence. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, So as the hitches who read beautifully might add, also I'm missing one. Todd is out of town because he is, Uh, doing important things all over the world. but So we missed one hitch. But um, (laughs) but, um, as they said, this week in Advent is uh, the Advent week of joy. Um, And every year that I have gotten to preach this sermon during Advent has uh, been, if you know me, this probably is not a surprise, but been my absolute favorite week of the whole season uh, to get to preach because I love preaching joy because um, honestly, I just, I love joy. And it's like, it's the pink candle and I like things that are different. I don't know, it just, it's an exciting time. There's, um, has anyone ever heard the personality test called the Enneagram? Uh, sometimes culty and bonkers, occasionally helpful, if you've heard of it. Um, But uh, I want to read to you what this test uh, says about me, (laughs) and this is why I like joy so much. Um, uh, the, the, The name for whatever I am is called The Enthusiast, and it says, They are relentlessly curious and optimistic, eager to get the most out of life. Then this part, they do their best to avoid negativity and pain, focusing their energy on finding pleasure and excitement, which I think is the right thing to focus your energy on, if I'm really honest. so. Um, it's like, uh, uh, by definition, I love joy. I, I love to talk about it. Um, and so a few years ago in this, well, not in this room and a few years ago in our other room, um, we together worked collectively to, uh, come up with a definition of joy that I love that I've used, um, for the years since then. Um, but if you remember, we started with a scientist, uh, uh, her name is Dr. Laurie Santos and she teaches a class called the science of wellbeing at Yale. And, um, her specialty, Dr. Santos is a psychologist who specializes in happiness and cognition. So studying the brain science around joy, around, around happiness. Um, and one of the most constant things that she sees in her research and in her study uh, on joy and happiness is this. She says, one of the things that the research consistently shows is that the path to happiness is paved with gratitude. And I think that's interesting uh, because what Dr. Santos has found uh, seems to line up very similarly to what the Bible has to say about joy. Uh, In the New Testament, the word used for joy most often is the Greek word kara, um, which we translate joy or gladness. Um, Probably a more accurate translation of it would be like the source of gladness or the source of joy, the fullness of uh, joy. But that word kara comes from the root word which is charis. And charis in English is translated by two words, gratitude and grace. So the, the source of the word most often used for joy in the scriptures uh, is, is by, used by the writers of the New Testament is the implication of gratitude in grace. Uh, In science and in the scriptures, the path to joy seems to be the same way both places. It is gratitude. And so this idea, as we talked about it, birthed uh, maybe my favorite definition of joy, and that's this. Joy is uh, not happiness. I keep using that word, but it's not really. Joy is grace recognized. Grace recognized. Uh, joy is is grace that has been observed and grace that has been processed by means of gratitude. It is grace recognized. Uh, I read somewhere that Stephen Colbert, uh, the host of The Tonight Show, said that, or not? He's not The Tonight Show. He's Tonight with Stephen Colbert. What is he? Is that right? Okay who cares, you can Google it, Um, (laughs) Colbert, I read that he has a sign on his computer, uh, like a post-it note that says, joy is the most infallible sign of the existence of God. And in our definition of joy, I think this has to be true, that the most infallible sign of the existence of God is the recognition of His grace. Uh, grace that comforts, what, what, what Emily read for us today, grace that comforts the brokenhearted and proclaims freedoms for the captives. Grace that brings beauty in the place of ashes, where uh, restores gladness where mourning was. Grace, um, uh, the grace to notice that, that when things have been ruined or lost or destroyed are now revived. Uh, this is joy. Joy is grace recognized. It's a, it's a very wide way of seeing things and a very wide way of seeing the world. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who I love, I think we have a slide for this, Emily, um, says this about it. He says, we cannot make ourselves joyful. Joy cannot be commanded, purchased, or arranged. But there is something we can do. We can decide to live in response to the abundance of God. We can decide to censure ourselves on the God who generously gives, not in our own e- not in our own egos which greedily grab. one of the certain consequences of such a life is joy. It's joy. Um, and I've been preaching this uh, for years, the same thing, for years. Uh, and uh, I believe all of it, like every single piece of it. I believe that joy is bigger than an emotion or a feeling, that it is the recognition of God's mercy and grace in our lives, and that that recognition is on a path to gratitude. I, I believe this. Um, I believe that that uh, joy is something that we are supposed to, to try to like have this single relentless stance toward, that we want to orient our lives around it. I believe all of those things and. And while I believe them all to be true, uh, and not just true, but like accessible and possible, um, uh, that doesn't mean that I always have it, uh, that I always live it out, that I always uh, recognize the grace of all of it. While I believe it is completely accessible through the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean I always am accessing it, Um, especially over the last few days. It's funny this, that this week has been bonkers and then this would be the topic. It would be joy. But even last night, like Tracy just asked if I was okay. And I was like, I'm so tired. I was up uh, with a kid who wasn't feeling well last night, but it, it's been more than that. Lots of you guys have had um, hard things this week. Um, on Friday, I sat with a very dear friend who had a death in her family. And it's 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 been a, a lot of things over the last few days. It's been a week filled with some places of real really deep grief. Um, And so while I believe that joy is beyond feeling, it is incredibly accessible. Sometimes uh, for me, disillusion is just on a lower shelf than joy. Do you relate to this? And I'm short, so I don't want to reach high. You know, like sometimes it's just a little bit easier to grab, disillusionment is. Um, Our scripture for today, Isaiah 61 It's an interesting one for me Um, uh, and a favorite. I I love the book of Isaiah, but I I love Isaiah 61. I love it so much. Um, But in seasons like the one I feel like I'm inching into over the last few days of grief and confusion and disillusionment, I find myself... thinking not just about uh, Isaiah 61, but but it, it shows up again later in other parts of the scriptures. So this text that we read today, Jesus quotes a couple of times in his life and in his ministry. Um, and in one of those is Matthew chapter 11. And in Matthew chapter 11, um, Jesus is at the very beginning of his ministry. He's just called his disciples and and he's um, he's invited them to follow along with him. And he's, he's going around Galilee and he's preaching and everyone is hearing about him, word is spreading about him, like far and wide, and everyone—part of that, everyone—is his cousin John, uh, John the Baptist. That's how uh, we talk about him in the scriptures. You, you know him probably, remember him probably. He, um, in the beginning of Luke, when Luke tells the story of how Jesus is born, uh, you might remember that Mary, uh, in order to like escape the shame and um, I don't know, social pressure of being an unwed pregnant teenager, she goes to stay with her cousin Elizabeth. And when she arrives at Elizabeth's house, the baby in Elizabeth's belly, John, uh, like jumps and leaps because he recognizes Jesus in the belly of Mary. That's the beginning of John's story. Um, John, he uh, is the one who baptized Jesus, uh, who in the Jordan River uh, baptizes Jesus. John spent his entire life preparing the way for Jesus from uh, the womb until he's baptizing him in the Jordan River. But when we get to Matthew 11, um, when Jesus is beginning to do what he came to earth to do, uh, John is in prison. Uh, John, he called out a powerful Roman leader for leaving his wife and sleeping with a woman who was not his wife but was his brother's wife. So uh, he got to go to jail uh, for calling that out. Um, so he's been arrested and put in prison, um, but he hears what's going on with Jesus. And so he sends word through his friends, uh, John's disciples, and he sends word to Jesus. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse two. He says, it says, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see, the blind receiving sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor calls John's question, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for someone else? One of the most haunting questions in the entire Bible. And the reason I think she does that is because of who is asking the question. At one point, when Jesus was describing John, Jesus described him as, other than himself, the greatest man to ever be born. Uh, I mean, I, I love my cousins, but they ain't perfect. You know, he's like, this is a good man, like the, the best to ever be born, other than myself, which sounds arrogant, but wasn't. It was Jesus. Jesus. Um, it's John, that, that, that's who John is. It's John who's devoted his entire life, just as I said, to preparing the way for the Messiah, who, who stood in the Jordan River and took Jesus under the water, but then felt the presence of God fall over that space like a dove. John who heard from that river the audible voice of God proclaiming his delight and favor and purpose over Jesus. This is who's asking this question. Is it you? Are you who you said you were, or are we waiting for someone else? It's a haunting question. Uh, Things have not gone well for John. They haven't gone how he expected uh, them to go. And so he's asking Jesus, are you the one that you say you is? Are you really who you say you are? Are you God, the one we've been waiting for? Because if so, why am I in prison? Like I did it right. If, if, you're, if you're who I was preparing the way for, how did I end up in prison? That's a haunting question. Um, but the question isn't just haunting. I think the answer is haunting too. Uh, Jesus answers and he points to the prophet Isaiah that Emily read today where he says pretty much every single line we read except one. Did anybody catch it? He says almost all of the lines except the one about freeing the prisoner. <laughs> It's Jesus' way of telling John, yes, I am the one who fulfills all of these prophecies and you're going to die in prison. Merry Christmas. Are you the one we've been waiting for? Yes. And you're going to die in prison. That is not my favorite answer. Uh, This is not the way that John thought that things would go. The Messiah that John was prepping for, that he was preparing the way for, that Messiah would, would change things. That Messiah would clean things up and revive them and restore them for his people. Uh, that, that Messiah, he was supposed to use his muscle and his force to separate the good guys from the bad guys. He was supposed to be the one that put things back to right, where people like Herod, who had done terrible things, would be in jail, and people like John, who had only done good things, would not be in jail. Uh, Jesus failed in probably so many ways to meet John's expectations. And so his question, is it you, or are we still waiting uh, for another? John, John has to be afraid that there's been a very big mistake. He has to wonder if he's been forgotten uh, by his cousin and, and forgotten by God. And I think this question and, and the answer are so haunting for me because they're not very hard for me to relate to. And I wonder if that's true for you as well. Uh, I have, and I would be uh, willing to bet that you have at some point in your life looked for God to show up in a certain way and then he just didn't do it. And that's confusing and it's haunting. Uh, I wanna read from Barbara Brown Taylor. I don't have this on the screen. It's a very long quote, so hang with me. But I tried to put it in my own words, but her words are just better. So, She says this. She says, It's not hard to understand what John was going through. We have all at some time or another looked for a Messiah who did not come the way we wanted him to come. You know what I mean. You wanted the Messiah to come and you wanted him to come right now. You wanted a clear, helpful answer to your questions. You wanted to be relieved of the burden of waking up day after day without knowing what you're supposed to do next. You wanted to put your hand under the pillow and find the answer there like a quarter from the tooth fairy. But morning after morning, all you feel is the sheet. That's my kid's experience of the tooth fairy also. I'm a terrible one. Okay, sorry. Or you want a Messiah who will rescue the innocent and punish the guilty. You don't want a Messiah who will see to it that they are exposed for who they are and that they're shunned by all the decent people. You have gathered a sympathetic jury, but so far you are waiting in an empty courtroom because the judge has not shown up and you are beginning to wonder if there is any justice in this world after all. Or you want a Messiah who will make you be good. You want a Lord who will take over your mind and your body so that you cannot mismanage them anymore. A Lord who will heal you in spite of yourself and who will not let you make any more mistakes. You want him to do the same thing, not just for you, but for the whole world. I think it is so relatable at some point in your life, in all of our lives, we experience the God who didn't show up like you hoped he would, or didn't show up like you longed for him to or expected him to, and and then we get something else instead. Uh, we get instead of, of maybe answers to our questions, we get the Christ who leaves us or even scarier, our children in their questions as they seek out answers. Or, or, or the God who gives the guilty, not always the innocent, a check a second chance. Or, or the God who leaves a mess and allows people to swim in it. We get uh, the God who is quiet when we're begging for answers or direction or the God who seems very still when what we ask for was some action and some movement. Are you even there or is it someone else we're supposed to wait on? Uh, I I read an article by a guy named Dr. Stevens Davidowitz, and he he wrote this article where he compiled a decade's worth of of Google searches and um, by different uh, sections, and and his section on the the most Googled questions about God uh, were this. These are the most Googled questions about God over the last 10 years. Number one, why does God allow suffering? Why does God hate me? Why did God make me ugly? Why did God make me gay? Why did God make me black? These are the most Googled questions about God. What that tells me is this is a very similar experience, that there's a thread that runs through our questions of disappointment and disillusionment with God. Are you him or are we still waiting on him? And if joy is grace recognized, then to me, I think disillusionment is disappointed, disappointment admitted. If, if joy is grace recognized, then disillusionment is disappointment admitted. And I think that disappointment admitted can be one of our best teachers in a spiritual life. I think sometimes the best way to learn about who God actually is, not just who we think he might be, but who he actually is, is to allow our disillusionments to draw us closer to the mystery of God, into who he truly is, not just who we hope him to be. Uh, I think our disillusionments with God can be like little pathways uh, into the places and things that we call God that aren't actually God. Uh, The Bible uses the same word for this all throughout it from beginning to end, and it's the word idols. Uh, Idols can take many forms. In the Old Testament, they show up as like a a golden statue. Uh, But idols aren't just golden statues. They are also characteristics that we put on God uh, to meet our own needs or fulfill our own hopes or fulfill our own dreams. Uh, Barbara Taylor, Brown Taylor, who I keep quoting. Also, I'm stealing all of this from her. This is just so stolen. But she uh, wrote a book uh, called God in Pain that is so good. Um, and this is the first chapter, and it's just been really influential in my life. But um, in, in that chapter that she writes uh, on this, um, she, she talks about a scene from The Last Temptation of Christ, uh, which is a book by uh, Nikos uh, Kazan. Kazanakis. I can't, I'm not Greek. I don't know how to say that, but Nikos Kazanakis. And um, it's a really controversial book. You may have read it. I don't know. Um, but there's this scene uh, where the author is imagining a scene between Jesus and John the Baptist. And I, I love this. And he, he, he places them, Jesus and John the Baptist are sitting together and he places them like high above the Jordan River, like looking over the place they've had this um, incredible experience, and they're tucked away in this cleft of a rock, and they've been arguing all night long. And uh, uh, when the the author sets the scene, he says that John is like um like fiery, he, like he's moving his hands and his his face is stern because he's so fired up about what he's talking about, and that in the scene Jesus is kind of the antithesis. He's steady and calm. His face is compassionate, uh, and then and then the writer jumps in and, and he says this, uh, that uh, at one point in the scene, John, or Jesus looks at John and he says, isn't love enough? And John says, answers angrily, no. The tree is rotten and God gave me, God called me and he gave me the ax and then I placed it at the root of the tree and I did my duty. Now you do yours, take the ax and strike it. What do we do with the world? Take the ax and strike it, it's rotten do your duty. And then in this imagined scene, Jesus looks at John and says, this is his response. He says, if I were a fire, I would burn. And if I were a woodcutter, I would strike. But I am a heart and I love. John, uh, alongside pretty much every single person Jesus meets has a picture or an idea of who Jesus should be has a picture, an idea of what it should look like to bind up the brokenhearted or to proclaim freedom for the captives of, of what it should look like to be a king of a kingdom. And John, I think, like all of us, uh, has idols that aren't made of gold but are made of thought or imagination or hope or expectation, things that we believe about who God is supposed to be that keep us from allowing him to be who he actually is. And joy, I think, seems to be tied directly to these pictures and to these ideas because when God fails to live up to them, the disappointments have a tendency to filter what we're able to recognize of grace, right? Like, are you the God I'm waiting on or should I expect someone else? Because this thing is not going how I hoped it would go. I'm sick and I thought you were supposed to heal sick people. I taught my kid everything I could teach about who you are and they decided none of it was true. I follow you and I gave my life to you but everything in my house keeps breaking like a practical joke. Um, I said that I I believe that these disappointments and disillusions are good teachers and I, I really do think that they're hard teachers but they're good teachers. Because every time God fails to, or just declines, uh, to meet my expectations, uh, it's like a curtain opening me up to see what it is that I am believing about God versus believing in Him. It's like a curtain opening up to show places in my imagination where God is, is uh, close fisted or, or over-focused, Uh, places where, where the opposite of joy seems to be rooted in my life where I'm disillusioned and I can't even recognize the grace in the moment because I'm so disappointed in how it was handled. And I think that it is very kind of God to give us the gift of disillusionment to allow us to see where our disappointments are uh, reshaping or stealing joy from us, reshaping or stealing our ability to recognize grace. Um, when, when people in the Bible ask God who he is, and they do from time to time, his answer is pretty much always the same. His answer is two words. He said, They say, Who are you? And he says, I am. Descriptive. I am. Essentially, if you translate it from language to English, it is, I will be who I will be. Who are you? I will be who I will be. And so it seems to me that the work of joy in our lives uh, has work to do in uncovering the places where the God we are expecting or the God that we want is covering up who God actually is, who God will be. And I think it is a work of joy uh, uh, to allow the Holy Spirit to reshape our view, not just of the world and not just of ourselves, but to reshape our view of God in light of who he actually is, to help us follow our disappointments about God into a more true version of him. And so I want to make some room to do that today uh, and now. Um... We'll take a few minutes here uh, if you're up for it. And I wanna invite you into a moment of thoughtful uh, reflection. It is my professional opinion that plenty of what we believe about God gets in the way of us actually seeing or experiencing Him. Um, I wanna read one last quote from Barbara Brown Taylor, since I've already stolen so much from her. She says this She says, We review our requirements of God and recognize them as our own fictions. Things we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel safe or good or comfortable. Disillusioned, we find out what is not true, and we are set free to seek what is true if we dare to turn away from the God who is supposed to be in order to seek the God who actually is. Uh, Like I said, I think it is kind of God to allow us to see our disappointments because on the other side of our disappointments, I think is maybe who he actually is. So I wanna create a space for us to be able to do that. Um, I'll tell you how I do this, and I i, I read it. I'm like, my imagination, uh, a therapist one time told me was active. I don't think that was a compliment, but I took it as one. So this is how I do this. If this is helpful, do it. If not, just like however it works for you. Um, but uh, someone had me do this practice, and it was really helpful. I close my eyes, and I imagine a room, and it's a holy room, like a temple. A picture of this room, whatever. And I put a chair in the middle of it, and I try to figure out what is it on that chair. Uh, that is God's chair. What is it that I'm putting on that chair that isn't him? And the way that I discover that is I think of the last time I was disappointed in him. When I asked him to answer a question, he didn't answer. And then on that chair, I find that, that I believe that God answers every single question right when I want him to. And that is my great idol. So I just try to do that. That's how I do it. If not, we'll just take some space and, um, and allow the Holy Spirit to do what he does uh, to help us see where are we disappointed, where are we disillusioned. And where is that keeping us from recognizing grace and experiencing joy in our life? So I'm gonna pray and bless it, and then I'll get off the stage and just give you a minute. So God, I, I pray for the courage to do this work, and I pray for the imagination to do this work. I pray that you would show us what in us um, is a close-minded view of you or a narrow-minded view of you? Where is it that we expected you to be an ax and you were a heart? Where is it that we asked you to answer, but instead we got the voice of still a silence? Where is it that we asked you to move or act or do something on our behalf and you seem to be still? I just pray that you would meet us in those moments, that you would Um, give us through your spirit the ability to not just see our disappointment but to see what's on the other side of it. To not just see what we've propped up in place of you in our lives but to see on the other side of it. I believe that you will be who you will be and I just pray that you would give us a picture of that in a new way a reimagined way. You are the one we wait on. There is no one else. In your name we pray.